Welcome back to Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. This is the second part of the series on general surgery. on now to Dr. Sani Rajput, who is going to be covering the paper titled Mortality and Pulmonary Complications in Patients Undergoing Surgery with Perioperative COVID-19 Infection, an International Cohort Study. And this was published in The Lancet in 2020. I think it's really interesting, this paper. I mean, we just can't escape COVID at the moment, but I think it's a really interesting one. So I'll hand it over to you, Sunny. Thank you. So this is a cohort study extending across 24 countries that were hit hard initially during the pandemic from January 1st to March 31st from last year. It included 235 hospitals. Most of the patient data comes from the UK, Italy, Spain, and US, as well as other countries in Europe and Asia. I think I should mention that Australia was not part of the data set for this study. It's just because the pandemic was fairly well controlled initially in Australia. So the aim of the study was to evaluate the impact of COVID infection on post-op recovery and understand clinical decision-making during and after the pandemic when the population eventually learns to live with the uh, COVID infection. It focuses on the 30-day mortality as well as pulmonary complication rates in patients with perioperative COVID infection. The guidelines at the time were mainly expert opinions and there was no clinical data to suggest evidence-based management of some of these patients that were coming through requiring surgery. So the primary outcome of the study was 30-day post-op mortality. The secondary outcomes included any pulmonary complications such as pneumonia, ARDS, unexpected ventilation, inability to extubate patients, PEs, unexpected ICU admission, or uh, reoperation. The participants of the study were basically patients who had a COVID infection diagnosed either seven days before their operation or 30 days after their surgery. Any patients undergoing any surgery, which was defined as an operative procedure performed by a surgeon requiring any sort of anesthesia, either local or general or sedation, was considered a surgery. Basically, the patients that were deemed as a COVID infection were either getting a clinical diagnosis by a senior clinician, radiological diagnosis via CT chest findings suggestive of COVID-19 infiltrates, or PCR testing. It's important to note that given that the study occurred early in the pandemic, the PCR testing at that time wasn't exactly perfect. So there were several patients that might have been missed during that time that were actually COVID positive, but had a false negative test. So in terms of the study design, so there were a total of 1,128 patients included. Out of those, uh, 74% had emergency surgery and 24% had elective surgery. Basically, the study was split into a pre-op diagnosis and a post-op diagnosis of COVID infection in both those subgroups and looking at the pulmonary complications as well as the mortality. In terms of the results, the study compared the mortality of different age groups as well as men, as well as getting a major versus a minor surgery, as well as elective versus non-elective surgery. So in terms of the COVID diagnosis, so 294 of the patients, so 26.1% of the participants of the study had a pre-op diagnosis of COVID and 806, uh, so 71% had a post-op diagnosis of COVID. Most of the diagnoses were made by PCR, so that was the majority. The second largest group was made by a radiological diagnosis, 
and clinical diagnosis was made in only 6% of the patients, so a very small percentage of the population. The indications for surgery in the population were mainly benign disease, which was 54% of the participants, cancer, which was 24% of the participants, trauma, which was 20% of the population. As I said, the types of procedures were split into minor and major. 841, so 75% of the participants had major surgery and 22% or 251 had minor surgery. In terms of the procedures included, most of them were GI or general surgical procedure, followed by orthopedic surgery procedures, followed by cardiothoracics, hepatobiliary, obstetric, vascular, head and neck, a few neurosurgical and urological procedures as well. 30-day mortality overall for the cohort was 23.8%. So that's 268 patients that passed away within the 30 days. The mortality for men was higher than women, so 28.4% for men, 18.2% in women. Also, if you were over 70 years or older, your mortality was much more than patients less than 70, so 33.7% for patients older than 70 years of age and only 13.9% for patients less than 70 years of age. Emergency surgery also carried a higher mortality rate compared to elective surgery. So 25% with emergency surgery, whereas 18.9% with elective surgery. The main predictors of 30-day mortality or you know, uh, risk factors that put you at a higher mortality rate within the 30 days were being male, being older than 70 years old, having an ASA grade three to five, so having other comorbidities that may, made you not a great surgical candidate, malignant disease, emergency surgery, and major surgery. It's interesting to note that predictors of seven-day mortality were mainly ASA grades, as well as having a pre-op diagnosis of COVID-19 rather than getting a post-op diagnosis. So the study also looked at the pulmonary complications of having COVID-19. So out of the total sample size of 1,128 patients, 577, so 51% had pulmonary complications. Out of those, the most commonest complication was pneumonia. So 40%, so 456 patients had developed a pneumonia in the post-operative 30-day period with a mortality rate of 38%. The second most common complication was ARDS, which carried the highest mortality rate of 63%. And unexpected ventilation was the least common out of the pulmonary complications, which had a mortality of 41%. They also compared pulmonary complication rates of PEs. The PE occurred in 2% of the total patients uh, in the study, so 22 patients. The 30-day mortality of patients with PE with COVID-19 was similar to those without PE. That so wasn't significantly higher. I think what's interesting about this paper is that they showed that post-op pulmonary complications occur in pretty much half of the patients with perioperative COVID infections and are associated with a significantly higher mortality. The observational study that they looked at was also a UK study and looked at the NILA score, which said the complications observed in uh, pre-pandemic studies had a post-op pulmonary complication rate of 10% and a mortality up to 3% after surgery within the 30-day period, whereas the overall 30-day mortality with the COVID-19 infection was 24% in this paper. It's interesting to note that minor surgery and elective surgery also had a higher than usual mortality that was observed with patients with COVID-19 infections. Basically, overall, all-cause mortality that was elicited in this paper was 18.9% in elective patients, 25% in emergency patients, 16% in minor surgery, 
and 27% in major surgery. Usually patients with COVID infection had a post-op pulmonary complication in about 50% of the patients, as I mentioned before, and ARDS had the highest mortality rate and occurred more frequently than pre-pandemic based papers on previous observational studies. In terms of the limitations, as I mentioned, initially during the pandemic, PCR testing was not that reliable. So there's a significant risk of some patients being missed during this time. And given that only 6% of the patients included were based on a clinical diagnosis, I think there was inherent bias to have people that had a positive PCR test to include them in the study. Whereas if you, there were a negative PCR test, no one really questioned it or revisited it afterwards based on the paper. And given the stress during the pandemic in these hospitals, people also wouldn't have revisited it and looked at the diagnosis a second time rather than, you know, just basing it off one test, it most likely happened. As I mentioned, it's largely North American European data, countries that were hit hardest initially during the pandemic, which was very different to how Australia initially handled the pandemic. And given the current surge with the Delta variant, I'm not sure, you know, if uh, the pulmonary complication rates are still the same with different variants. Thanks so much, Sonny. That was a great summary of that paper, which is very relevant, I guess, to things we're still facing today with surgical patients and ongoing concerns with COVID, both undiagnosed and diagnosed. When I was reading this paper, I just couldn't get out of my head the question, you know, how would these patients have gone with COVID alone? I guess that's something it's really hard to tease out with this paper, kind of determining which patients would have had bad pulmonary complications regardless of their surgical intervention. I don't know if you can shed any light in terms of the paper on that. I know it's probably a bit of a difficult question to... I mean, it's difficult to tell because a lot of the you know risk factors that we associated with getting pulmonary fibrosis or a secondary bacterial infection with COVID uh, include like obesity, diabetes and stuff. So I guess you could argue in one sense that they would be possibly patients that's ASA grades three to five, and they're at higher risk of developing complications, which was seen in this study. So maybe it wasn't the surgery that caused the complication. It was just COVID or like, it's really difficult to tell because that was not the data that they included in the surgery. We are aware that patients with comorbidities generally don't do well with COVID and are at risk of a higher mortality. And, you know, having surgery during that time also possibly increases their risk of complications. However, I think uh, given that a lot of the emergency surgery patients had complications and technically emergency surgeries patients that you can't really avoid a surgery in and their disease or their surgical pathology carries a significant mortality risk, uh, you have to operate on them anyways. So it'd be interesting to compare, you know, patients that are ASA three to five who got surgery versus COVID patients that are admitted to the ward that are ASA three to five and the complication rates comparatively between the two. But I don't necessarily think that, you know, in patients with the highest mortality in this paper, surgery could have been avoided anyway. So they had to get surgery to avoid basically a hundred percent mortality. Yeah, and I think that's very important to recognize. And I guess what I found most interesting in this paper was the fact that those with the minor surgeries had higher mortalities. I think that's probably the most relevant thing we can take away in terms of our practice. And it's, I guess, been reflected in what we've done 
just based off our resources available to us as well, but we haven't been, you know, pursuing elective surgeries during this period of time. This paper, I guess, supports that. One other question I had from this paper, I guess, so this was done before the pandemic hit Australia, like you said. I don't know whether it mentioned what kind of treatment these patients were getting for COVID specifically, because I wonder if, you know, they were being treated with some of the, you know, the dexamethasone or the remdesivir Mm. medications that our patients are getting treated with now. I wonder whether that maybe contributed to the increased pneumonia rates that you saw in the paper I don't know whether it commented on what treatment these patients were getting specifically for COVID. It didn't comment on treatment that they were receiving for COVID. But if you look through the American and the European guidelines early on during the pandemic, they were like sort of changing on a monthly basis. And during the period that this paper analyzes data from, there was no real consistent guidelines. So it is very possible that, you know, the patients that were admitted with COVID and during this time weren't actually getting standardized therapy as they are now in Australia or here at Westmead. Um, So it is entirely possible that, you know, the bacterial pneumonia and things could have been due to a lack of therapy. So ARDS occurred more frequently in this paper than it would in current times. And then the mortality was still high, which is what I think you would mainly worry about COVID in terms of bacterial or opportunistic infection. I think the treatment would have been fairly standardized and the mortality wouldn't have been impacted in terms of the change guidelines. I think most of them would have still received antibiotic therapy. It's still up to argument whether the immunomodulation or the immunosuppressive therapy might have contributed to that. And they don't really comment on that in the paper. So it's difficult to know. I might open up to everyone else now just to see what other people's thoughts were on this paper and its applicability to the pandemic wave we're still facing now. I think the odds point is important because as we see with COVID here, it's basically like a single organ dysfunction. And so, like you said, Caroline, I think the surgery just happens to be happening whilst they have COVID. But whether it really is impacting on the mortality, I don't know how they looked at it. it was right. I think it would have been perhaps more wise as a cohort study to have also looked at your non-COVID positive patients and see what their mortality was to really compare. And then the other things you need to question is, well, like you said as well, something like if they don't have surgery, then what happens to them? If these are emergency surgeries, well, they need to have it anyway. Yeah, exactly. So I agree with that because I went through the supplementary data and didn't think any of the emergency surgery could have been avoided. Mm. You know, these are potentially patients that would have 100% mortality if they didn't get surgery. I think in terms of where this paper sort of adds more to the clinical knowledge is looking at elective surgery Mm. uh, and helping both patients and surgeons make a clinical decision about, you know, whether to proceed with the surgery during, you know, a COVID infection, which is bound to happen now that we've opened everything up. There will be patients who have COVID infection and they will get booked into elective surgery for whatever reason. And then during the pre-op period, maybe it would be interesting to sort of get a COVID swab to have the surgery. And then looking at that, it does basically say that you're even with the elective surgeries, uh, your risk of post-op complications higher. It doesn't really comment on whether that's from COVID alone or whether it's the fact that COVID plus surgery is the one that's responsible for making your risk higher. So I think in terms of emergency surgery, this paper is not really useful in terms of delaying that. But I think it is interesting from your elective surgery point of view. So that's a decision that I guess the surgeons and the patient have to make together saying like, yes, we are aware there's an increased risk of complications, but we're not sure if that's from COVID alone or from 
you having COVID plus the additional surgery. This paper is trying to be like, you know, this is the data. And then people will have to do additional research to figure out what those complication rates are. I think that's a really useful point, Edgardo, in terms of, I guess, the, the potential utility of comparative outcomes rather than just a straight cohort study. The results of this paper are relatively intuitive. You know, you've got a cohort of patients that have two stresses instead of one. And so obviously two stresses equals, you know, increased risk of things going badly. We know that COVID in of itself is something that causes significant mortality and morbidity and you know, emergency surgery, and particularly, you know, when they're looking at some of the breakdown of patients that did poorly, we already know that patients who are ASA three to five are much more likely to have significantly worse perioperative outcomes. So I don't think there's any surprises in this paper. I guess there is some utility in quantifying this so that we could have an educated discussion with our patients in terms of sort of helping them understand the risks. I'm interested, both Sergey and Michael, in your extrapolation of the results of this paper in terms of our current Delta pandemic. Obviously, we're in quite a different situation to, you know, the overwhelming uh, sort of load on the health system that Europe and America were facing last year. Probably at our worst, we were quite stretched, but probably still coping. And the other thing being that elective surgery has essentially, particularly in Western Sydney, been all but completely stopped for a large part of this period. I'm interested in what you guys think in terms of the impact of strain on the health system purely in and of itself in terms of leading to bad health outcomes. Because I imagine that if the hospital system is overwhelmed, there's probably a whole lot less bandwidth for individual clinicians to be able to pay for individual patients in terms of making sure that all of the smaller things that contribute to things going well, maybe the, the earlier recognition of deterioration, maybe making sure they're on appropriate prophylaxis or making sure that, you know, those, those other sort of smaller things are done better. So yeah, I, I'm just interested in your thoughts about that. Like we've kind of touched on, this is a snapshot study early on in the pandemic, and we know a lot more about it these days. One thing that wasn't really covered in that study was what was the severity of the disease of these people having the surgery? If they all had severe disease, then, you know, you might imagine that they would do badly anyway. But what about those with the, with the mild disease that, you know, sometimes we see uh, they don't have those, um, those markers of severe disease? Would that be any different for them? Um, that would, you know, kind of require a, a whole different set of observational data, really. Was that increase in mortality as well? Like you've already mentioned, were they overburdened? What were the resources they had available to deal with all those patients at the time that developed those complications? Were they able to get access you know, to the ICU level care they needed? We just don't know, do we, based on that? It's very hard to extrapolate any kind of outcomes, I think, based on just this observational snapshot early on in the pandemic. This paper needs to be interpreted in the context of the early pandemic. And as Michael said, this was very, very early days and not a lot of people knew how to deal with this. And there are two things in relation to COVID, how it influences the hospital team. Uh, so, you know, you have to wear PPE, uh, you have to protect the hospital staff and how it influences the patient. Obviously, this is an observation study with lots of plot holes and lots of room for interpretation, but it, it drives the point home that people with active COVID disease have uh, much higher mortality rates in emergency settings compared to uh, patients that don't have COVID. Since that study, we have a lot more data to help us interpret patients' disease in the light of the current management of COVID patients. 
electively and and in emergency setting. And there's a good study in JAMA suggesting that asymptomatic patients with COVID having elective uh, surgery have an increased risk of mortality, uh, which tapers off to almost negligible difference at about uh, six to seven weeks. And that's currently what we're doing. We're delaying surgery, uh, elective surgery by uh, six to seven weeks. I mean, currently in, in, uh, in Sydney, we're not doing any elective surgery at all. And we're delaying <clears throat> surgery for everyone for months and months, which is probably quite detrimental to the patient's well-being. On the other hand, if you have a patient with, uh, say, a breast cancer or colon cancer, um, six weeks is probably the most they can wait for it. So if they, if they're COVID positive, you need to make the call. Uh, if they're symptomatic, that obviously is going to increase the risk of complications. Uh, but if they're completely asymptomatic, then uh, maybe a shorter duration may be sufficient. It's a complex area. Uh, there's no one really knows the answer to that. But as we're treating COVID better and we, our protocols improve, I think we're going to reduce that mortality risk further and further as we understand the disease. And just one last point I wanted to make is that uh, I, I actually disagree with you, Edgardo, surprisingly. <laughs> I think that knowing that your emergency surgery carries uh, increased risks will provide me with more incentive to try and treat uh, a particular patient non-operatively. And there are very few cases in general surgery where surgery has to happen. You know, it's a perforated viscous with uh, so uncontained perforation, someone bleeding, someone about to die, in which case we don't really have much of a choice. But it's uh, surprising how much we can get away with, with appropriate supportive care and antibiotics these days. In terms of the emergency surgeries, which sort of surgeries have you guys been performing both? You know, you're, you're at Auburn at the moment, and and I guess it'll be interesting to hear from our surgical registrars what the experience is at Westmead. What things are being deferred? What things are being prioritized? Possibly from more technical factors as well. You know, how does it impact your performance to have to wear extra layers of PPE and perhaps be a little bit more uncomfortable while you're performing these procedures? Yeah, all of those things, as you said, uh, we, at Auburn, we don't operate on COVID positive patients at all. So you'll have to ask the Westmead colleagues about their experience with COVID positive patients. We are currently not operating on anyone apart from category one patients, those that need to be done within 30 days or, or urgent category two patients. And if those patients have a COVID positive diagnosis, in leading up to their surgery, then a decision will be made in discussion with the patient and their treating clinician as to when that surgery should proceed, whether it can be deferred or not. In the majority of cases, it can be deferred for over six weeks to ensure the safety margin uh, is adhered to. That may change in the future, obviously, as we understand the disease better. And it, a lot of it depends on whether the patient is symptomatic or asymptomatic from COVID. The second uh, point that you've touched on um, as well is the risk to the, uh, to the treating team, the risk to the nursing staff and the doctors. And with a COVID-positive patient, we have to wear full protective equipment. But with uh, laparoscopy, with endoscopy, the risk for aerosolization of COVID particles is, is quite high. And um, I know that my colleagues in the States have been managing that risk uh, with PPE, uh, but 
there is a fairly significant percentage of staff that that will that would contract uh, COVID, and that carries uh, its issues um, uh, with staffing, rostering, um, and uh, appropriate allocation of uh, limited uh, public sector resources. Andy and Edgardo, do you guys have any comments on that? I certainly know that you know even doing procedures in ICU where I'm at at the moment, like doing doing a central line where I'm in COVID PPE and normal aseptic gowns is very uncomfortable and unpleasant. So I don't know if you guys have had to operate in similar conditions, but also in terms of what you've observed in terms of the impact on surgery during during the current wave. I'll start my answer with a couple of caveats. One, I'm not surprised that Sergey disagrees with me because he's a much wiser and more experienced human than I am. I'm still quite junior. So in my mind, skin to knife is always the best option to any solution, to any problem. I mean, it's hard for me because I'm at the moment, I mean, ICU. So I haven't really seen what the Westmead ASU team is doing. It's so more like you said, Shreyas, I mean, even just doing the lines in ICU, it's 10 times more uncomfortable and difficult because you're trying to put on your sterile gown on top of all your other PPE. And inevitably, even just with your own kind of sympathetic drive with the stress of what you're doing, your mask and everything ends up fogging up. You can't see half the time what you're trying to do. I know from just the business rules that I've seen from the emails we get from uh, Dr. Nama, our superintendent, the current structure for ASU is that if there is an emergency surgery that needs to be done, it should be done by the most senior members of the team. In that case, either the very senior registrar or the fellow, depending on who's available, if not the consultants themselves. And that's aimed to minimize the surgery time, minimize the number of people in theaters, and also optimize the outcome of the surgery. Because obviously, if you have a much more experienced surgeon operating, the risks of complications are lower. But I have, again, limited experience being in ICU. I can only tell you what it's like to do art lines and CVC lines. I don't know what it's like in trauma, Mm. Andy. Yeah, so Caroline and I have been on the trauma team. I think there's already a, a good body of evidence in trauma about which patient can have a trial of non-operative management, which still holds to this time. And we are still, you know, having patients on enrolled into non-operative pathways when they're eligible. You know, our experience in trauma has been just from our time in trauma has been that the patients come through and they have to have an unknown COVID status at the time. And these are for operative patients who are critically unwell. The status may not be back by the time that a decision to go to the operating theatre has been made. Well, we have had operations where we presume positivity and we uh, have full PPE in place uh, and we begin the operation with these precautions, do the operation with these precautions. And it is, you know, uncomfortable, but it is for the safety of all involved. And we proceed as as usual. So in trauma, I, I think, you know, the operations that we do do They are clinically required, and so we can't change that part of our decision-making. But what we can do is protect everyone with with the presumption that we have to uh, protect ourselves with the information that we don't have. Thanks for that. I guess there's probably a lot of unanswered questions as well, as Sergey already alluded to. Like It'll be very interesting to see the impact of vaccination as well, Um, whether a vaccinated COVID-positive patient carries the same risk perioperatively or not. I just don't know. I guess is something that we'll see, particularly in Australia. It'll be an interesting cohort to see because we don't carry the burden of disease that other, other countries have carried as well. And certainly in terms of COVID therapies, um, which Caroline, I think you touched on earlier, active infection is, is a contraindication for many of the immunomodulating therapies. 
being immunosuppressing medications. And I would certainly imagine that having a, a, a surgery would in some ways have a similar impact in the sense that I imagine wound healing would be terribly impaired if you're going to significantly block the immune cascade. So again, you know, uh, unanswered questions about the impact that that has. Yeah, I agree. I feel like this area is going to continue to evolve over the next six to 12 months, really. And it'll be really interesting to see where it heads, because I think ultimately putting off elective surgeries long term is not the answer either. It's a very interesting space to watch. Thank you very much, everyone. That was an enlightening discussion. Now it's time for our interlude segment, which Dr. Sergei Sakhanov has prepared for this month. Thank you, Sergei. My name is Sergei Sakhanov. I'm a general surgeon. I'm currently employed as a fellow at Auburn Hospital. And apart from general surgery, um, I have a, an interest in, in surgical education. Uh, in Auburn Hospital, uh, we are associated with the University of Notre Dame that has clinical school next door. It's the other clinical school of University of Notre Dame, Australia is in St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. At Auburn Hospital, we have been running a medical student surgical education session that's called the virtual ward rounds. Bit of a misnomer, but I, I'll explain it later. And uh, I thought I'd, I'd just talk a little bit about that, about this initiative that we're running uh, and see if I can get maybe some of my Westmead colleagues on board with that as well. The virtual ward rounds has originated during the initial lockdown in March 2020, as the medical students were not allowed to participate in the clinical ward rounds. And uh, what we started doing is twice weekly, one hour long tutorials between eight and uh, nine o'clock every morning over Zoom, talking to medical students about our inpatients and just going through issues, clinical scenarios, talking about uh, you know, fluid management, pain management, all of the wonderful little uh, things that uh, junior medical officers have to look after uh, as far as perioperative management of surgical patient goes. But it kind of then took off a life of, of its own and became very popular with our medical students to the extent that we were requested to continue going with that after lockdown ended. So I, together with the head of department here, Dr. Lin Mann, we came up with a bit of a curriculum to run the virtual ward rounds. What we've done is created a, a teaching plan, a lesson plan for those tutorials to allow for variability and flexibility and delivery of uh, uh, Zoom, Teams, or whatever else audiovisual environment infrastructure is supported. But that would also allow any level of tutor from a surgical resident to a fellow to pick up and run with, to allow for a breadth and depth of knowledge delivered to the medical students. And I would focus on the perioperative management. And I'll explain very briefly how it works. Some of the things that we're trying to improve here as well was the clinical surgical rounds. Majority of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Medical students tag along with a big team on the rounds. Each patient is seen within about two and a half minutes. There's about 20 patients to see 
and the theaters start at 7 30 8 o'clock in the morning so as far as clinical teaching opportunity these the surgical clinical rounds uh, are not the best and it's quite well documented in the literature uh, so by providing the medical students an opportunity to interact with the uh, with their surgical colleagues with the registrars with the fellow they can actually obtain a lot of the useful information and ask a lot of clinical questions relevant to the perioperative management and that was the the biggest focus of this curriculum so we've come up with uh, a variety of topics relevant to perioperative care. I've got about 50 different topics, and they range from things like uh, epistaxis to postoperative delirium, uh, sepsis, uh, surgical site infections, to things like um, catheterization, nasogastric tube placements, thrombophlebitis, and so on. And uh, each of these tutorials will have two of those topics discussed with a clinical vignette for role play, so an intern uh, on the ward uh, coming across a patient with this particular problem, with uh, questions and answers to guide discussion, provide uh, adequate uh, level of knowledge. Uh, that happens in the second half of the tutorial. And the first half of the tutorial is given for uh, burning questions, uh, uh, anything interesting that the students uh, may have seen uh, on, the, on the rounds, uh, or for the uh, tutor uh, that's taking this tutorial to discuss an interesting patient that they think is important to, uh, for, for medical students to, to know about. We've been running this for over a year now. It has got uh, fantastic feedback from uh, the medical students. And as an unintended consequence, we're getting uh, feedback that uh, these tutorials allowed the students to better integrate within the community of practice and uh, makes the surgical team a lot more approachable. And as another thing, because we have a protected teaching time and one of the registrars will take the students for it for a tutorial, uh, twice a week, and it's, it can be it can vary on the day. Whomever's free uh, is you know usually takes them. It it has an unintended consequence, or maybe partially intended, of having the trainees much more involved in surgical teaching, and by providing them with uh, information, we eliminate some of the variability, the intuitive variability, and allow them to give correct answers to the medical students for a lot of the topics. And uh, by providing them with topics for discussion, we also make it a little bit more broader because Open Hospital is, is, is fairly small. Uh, we have excellent surgeons. We don't come across a variety of surgical complications. So we do need to make them up uh, to, do, to be able to discuss them. Our system has been uh, presented at an international uh, meeting and uh, in the UK at ASME meeting and uh, achieved uh, recognition has been published uh, as well. And we are developing it further and going to be running it for the foreseeable future, governed by the Department of Surgery here with one of the surgeons involved uh, by the University of Notre Dame. And uh, we have recently started our own podcast as well. It's called Virtual Ward Rounds. Uh, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram for uh, new episodes published every week. We tend to try to make it short and snappy, just like during our tutorials, about uh, 20 minutes per episode. And these are mainly perioperative care topics, but also on other issues related to surgical training, surgical life, and, uh, and other things. Thanks, Sergey. That sounds amazing. I kind of wish we had that when we were medical students, to be honest. Always felt very lost on the ward rounds, just running around looking for folders. But yeah, that sounds amazing. Maybe something 
not just surgical teams could adopt, but maybe the medical teams too. That brings us to the end of the second part of the series on general surgery. Thank you so much to Sunny, Sergey, and Michael for their contributions and time. Again, the link to the paper will be in the show notes. We will also include a link to the amazing Surgical Education Initiative virtual ward rounds. Don't forget to email us your feedback or commentary to westmateedjournalclub at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the final part of the series where we talk about appendicitis.